Hello, Disc Golf fans, and welcome back to another episode of Running It with Nate Sexton. I'm your co-host, Jared Orr. He is what many consider the unofficial voice of Disc Golf, which officially makes him my favorite podcast host and my partner, Mr. Nate Sexton. Nate, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great. We had a, a beautiful sunny day here. Everything going well. Got out and uh, played some golf uh, yesterday with uh, with my wife and daughter. It's been a good good weekend and starting off with a good week. I threw my favorite destroyer in the drink today, so I'm not I'm not doing great. <laughs> you gotta have but, a back. If you need a backup, man, I, I can help you. I, I have a couple. It's all right. Oh um, yeah, see. It's- it's it's about it's about knowing a guy. I like yeah, absolutely. That. Yeah, well, I, we I, we can get you taken care of, no problem. Some amazing coverage uh, from disc golf from the past weekend. It's always fun watching Paul and Ricky battle it out. Did you get a chance to catch any of that? Yes, I saw the last six or seven holes live. Obviously, I was checking the U disc all weekend because I always am doing that. But actually, got to sit down and watch the disc golf network coverage for the last bit, and like unbelievable. I mean, couple couple of guys you can't play better i mean it just doesn't even compute really to say you average 1074 and you lose by two some other crazy stats i read there was a stretch in the final round where paul Macbeth went minus seven in 10 holes and lost five shots to ricky wysocki because ricky wysocki was 12 under in those same 10 holes so i mean it's just crazy those guys are they they blitzed the field they they've done it before i hope they'll do it again they're two of the best it just incredible anytime we get a chance to see those guys go toe-to-toe when they're both healthy and playing great it's like it's just disc golf has not been done better very many times than how those guys do it all right nate now before we kick off another amazing interview we got to take care of a little bit of business and of course you guys already know i'm talking about our friends over at fisherdiscgolf.com fisherdiscgolf.com has all of your disc golf needs everything from discs apparel baskets. They're really just doing it the right way. You can follow them on social media. Uh, They're at Fisher Disc Golf on Facebook and Instagram. Of course, every Tuesday and Friday night, they do the Disc Stacks. That is at 8 p.m. Central, or excuse me, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find that on Facebook or YouTube. Now, Nate, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Fisher had a little bit of scare. One of the Fisher members uh, came down with COVID. So I know they're taking a few days off. Uh, so I don't know if they'll be back to this stacks this Friday, uh, but we are certainly thinking about everybody over at Fisher Disc Golf uh, here at Running It with Nate Sexton. Hope everything works out well for you guys. I know you're all in a little bit of a quarantine. So hopefully you guys are catching up on some running it and, and watching some disc golf. But for everybody listening, go ahead and check them out. They really have some amazing discs, guys. Um, whether it's the collector plastic that they still have in, uh, and they're constantly getting new drops from Innova and all of the brands that are out there. Check out FisherDiscGolf.com. And uh, just for listening to this show, you can go ahead and save yourself a little bit of money. How do they do that, Nate? Use our code RUNIT10 to save 10%. It's always free shipping. Also, just want to say speedy recovery. Hope those guys are doing all right. Yeah, absolutely. Great group. So FisherDiscGolf.com, go ahead and check them out. Uh, It's one of the best ways to support the show is by supporting our sponsors. Now, Nate, we got a little bit of a late jump here on the East Coast to get this one out for everybody. And uh, thanks to our friends over at Cab Coffee Road. 
Coasters. I was able to get myself a cup of coffee in, get myself a little pumped up, ready for the episode, and I don't have to worry about that horrible sugar crash from those crazy energy drinks that I used to get. Hudson went ahead and sent us over some coffee. I'm just about out of it, so it's going to be time for me to get more soon, uh, but the, the coffee's just been amazing. I'm not a huge coffee guy myself. I've become a coffee guy because of Cab Coffee Roasters. Now, not only because they sponsor this show and help us get this content out for our listeners, but Hudson and the folks over at Cab are just doing some amazing things. You've heard us talk about how he got started uh, and doing all of these amazing things for folks within the disability community. Check out Cab Coffee Roasters. Make sure you're following them on social media. They're on Facebook and Instagram at Cab Coffee Roasters. All the information there to pick up your favorite kind of coffee. He's constantly coming up with new flavors. Uh, and it's just a really a great way to help out a, a small business, somebody who's uh, who's taken a leap in kind of a, a tough time in economy right now. But when you have a product like Hudson has, and you're doing the things that he's doing, uh, um, you know, it's good to do. So for you guys to check this out, check out Cab Coffee Roasters. Nate, how you doing on your Cab Coffee, man? Also running out, uh, but loving it. I've been drinking it every morning, and I'm going to continue doing that. I, it's the same same story for us. You can save 10% on your first order with the code RUNIT10 over at Cab Coffee Roasters. Give it a try. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on. I'm in it. I mean, it's it's really good. I feel like I, I'm looking forward to having it every morning. Like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm not like a coffee snob. I'm definitely a coffee drinker every day. But, yeah, it's better than the, the Starbucks stuff that I have. And uh, I'm going to get get subscribed so I can get it just showing up and I don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Check them out. Uh, you can follow them on Instagram or Facebook at Cab Coffee Roasters. We're constantly sharing their stuff. So you can follow us at Running It With Nate Sexton on both Facebook and Instagram. And I will go ahead and continue sharing links uh, for Hudson and the crew over at Cab Coffee Roasters. Go ahead and check them out. Again, guys, the number one way to support the show is by supporting our sponsors. So go ahead and check them out and, uh, and see what they have to offer. Now, Nate, we're coming off of an awesome episode from last week. We had the 1984 world champ Sam Farron's on with us. Um, some amazing feedback on that show. One of the things that I'm really noticing here is people love to have your friends from tour on and hear those stories, but people are really enjoying the history of disc golf and some of the stories that maybe we're not as familiar with. And you got went ahead and lined up a, an opportunity for us to do that just again for our listeners. Who are we running it with today, Nate? We're going a lot deeper. I mean, no, no, uh, slight to Sam at all, but you know, if, if he seemed old school, we're going even farther back this time. Cause we're so lucky to be joined for this episode by PDGA number three, which we'll get to that, but Dan Stork Roddick, incredible. So glad to have him. Hey, it's uh it's a delight to be with you folks. Thanks for joining the show. I'm really excited. Obviously we have, uh, you know, met a few times, but I've been excited all week just to get the chance to kind of sit down and, and be able to talk to you for an extended amount of time because it's always like, you know, me running up to get your autograph real quick in Santa Cruz a couple of years ago. I actually did that and, and that you know, I'm not I haven't got too many autographs in my career, but that was one where I felt like, man, I really gotta get this guy to sign a disc. This is so cool to see somebody who is kind of there for the whole beginning of everything as it relates to flying discs. So really excited to get the chance to have you on the show. Uh, well, I gotta, I gotta share a story with you that these days I, I more than a few times sign Ed Hedrick autographs, 
because there's a lot of young kids out there. And at this point, I look kind of like him and a kid will come up and go, steady Ed, right? Oh, oh, one. And I don't want to disappoint him. <laughs> so I just sign it. <laughs> those are those are probably pretty rare, getting those Ed Hedrick autographs in 2021. That's hard to find. <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. But yeah, I, I do remember, uh, you know, coming up to you there in, in Santa Cruz a couple of years back. Uh, you were nice enough before we did this interview when you agreed to do this to send me uh, a link to Lynn Warren's profile of you. And that was actually in the final issue issue of Disc Golf World magazine. That was winter 2008. And I was able to read through that and get a little bit more deeper look at kind of your story as, as it relates to disc sports. So after that, I kind of made some notes for myself, and and you know I'd love to just kind of hear hear in your own words some of those stories that uh, that were kind of briefly highlighted in that article. If you're if you're okay with that, I'd just love to hear some more. Uh, sure. It, it's I warn you, it's kind of difficult. I mean, like you're at a party, and eventually somebody says, "So I hear you're into frisbee." You know, yeah. <laughs> where do you? Where well, do you no, I, I'm not. Yeah, I, no, I'm. I'm not going to leave you hanging like that. I've got. I've got much more specific uh, notes for you. You don't okay. have to just start talking. I want to. I want to start off uh, just kind of in the very beginning. You were born 1948, uh, and you were already throwing discs in the 50s uh, with your father. And there was a little kind of passage in there. You guys were basically playing disc golf, though not thinking of it as golf in any way. What, what was it you were calling it? Like flying, and you called them flying saucers right at that time. Nobody really frisbee wasn't even a, a word. Well. We were probably for most of that throwing actual uh, flying saucers. Uh, Pipco, the first the first disc I had was a Pipco flying saucer, and and then we had an early Whammo flying flying saucer. Um, and Dad was an astronomer, uh, ran a planetarium. So we were kind of space oriented, <clears throat> and the game that we were playing in the backyard was uh, a space race, essentially. So we each had our little spaceship, and we would see how many flights it took to land at the base of a tree. And I, I keep wishing that I could say because Dad was a really, really good uh, golfer. Yeah. Uh, ball golfer and uh, shot a 69 once. Wow. And, and, but we never looked at each other and said, Hey, this is, this is Frisbee golf. Uh, I'm kind of embarrassed. Uh, we were playing space race. <laughs> well, I mean, as a, you know, t 10, 12 year old, who could blame you? Space race kind of sounds better. I, I, I love disc golf a lot, but uh, I could go for a game of space race. That sounds pretty compelling. <laughs> You'd be good at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, pretty cool just to imagine, you know, the very beginning. It's like there wasn't even really flying disc sports as anything like we know now. It's just sort of like a a party game or, you know, some something you might grab before you go to the beach. But then um, things started to accelerate, I'd say, for you and, uh, in, and in some ways because of you. Because as you kind of grew up and kept that passion. It seemed like you guys attended some like world's fairs and saw some demonstrations and then turned out that like you guys were kind of like better throwers than some of the people who were demonstrating. Cause you'd been doing it a long time. And then, uh, you know, getting into college, uh, I saw this little, 
uh, part in the article that really caught my interest from uh, when you were at Millersville State College talking about the longest continuous Frisbee game, uh, like a, a world record. And and it said that it went for two and a half months, and I'm and I can't imagine is this is this around the clock or is this a daytime only activity? Daytime only. <laughs> around the clock. That, that's no record. That's kind of what I thought, but I just couldn't imagine every night for two and a half months there was people playing catch all at four in the morning. There there was a huge sign up list on my dorm room door, and. Friends would come by and would sign up and there were open slots and, you know, there was no email. So you kind of had to go out and knock on doors and say, hey, we, we need somebody for the 3 to 4 a.m. tomorrow. You wow. Know, you guys good? And um, that ran that long. But fast forward, when I was at Rutgers with the Ultimate Team, I... I don't know how long it was, but I think we went for almost an entire semester. Yeah, that, it did say that later that I you guys so. bested your own record. But I, I just couldn't even – the two and a half months boggled my mind. I mean, even with an army of people interested, it's like the sign-up sheet on that 2.30 a.m., 3 a.m. every single night. I mean, through the rain, whatever it is, it's just crazy to think that uh, there were people playing a continuous game of catch. It said like anywhere from just the two, the required two, the minimum two, up to 50 people during the day on a Sunday day out there playing. But yeah, pretty crazy to think to to have the sign-up sheet and go through it for that long. And then again, to, to better that record later. Not not something I would, I don't know, I don't assume it's been beaten, but I mean, that that's that's not an easy feat. To, it almost would have to be a college, I think. Yeah, well, it fit, it fit right in and it got huge. I mean, the radio station was coming out and doing remotes from there. Vincent Price was on campus for some show and he came and he threw and that made the IFA news. And uh, it was the kind of thing you do in college. You know, it was, <laughs> and, and when you're a Frisbee nut. Yeah. And speaking of uh, college ultimate and in your time at Rutgers, I played college ultimate as well, but I think it might've been a little different because you actually played in the inaugural collegiate ultimate game. This is in 1972 Keep in mind, for those that maybe don't know, Ultimate was only, like, invented in maybe in 1968, I think, by a high schooler who, like, uh, brought that idea of a sport to his school. So this is only four years later. Like, I got to imagine literally no one knows what it is. Uh, and then you guys had the very first game, Princeton against Rutgers, 103 years to the day after the first ever collegiate football game that was contested between those same two schools. And if I was reading it right, in the exact same spot, though it was no longer a field, it was now a parking lot? Yes. And, <laughs> and, and the four years, the four years is because uh, it was invented at Columbia High School in New Jersey, and they had the high school league of schools around Columbia. And then when those kids started to graduate, they said, okay, this, this isn't the end of it. We're taking this to our colleges. And that's when it started to explode out the colleges. So when I arrived at, at Rutgers, I was showing up there for grad school. And so Irv Kalb was there from Columbia, one of the initiators of it at, at Columbia. And that first game, Johnny Hines from Columbia was down at Princeton, and then Irv and Jeff West and uh, other movers and shakers 
there at Rutgers had the tremendous idea to say, hey, we're close to this anniversary. Let's just do all those things like the first game. And um, it was it was a, an unbelievable event. I mean, we went out on this parking lot and started to play, and somehow uh, students found out about it through the, the paper and word of mouth, and then they started to to cheer in a way, and every time there was a pull, they made a, a huge noise. And that quickly drew a crowd to where it was 10 deep all around the pitch. The The entire field was packed. It it was crazy. And, and then uh, it, they, Jeff and others, had done so good a job of advertising it that it was completely covered by local media. Jim Bouton was there uh, from New York Station. And that night, uh, after we had <clears throat> beaten Princeton by two, just like in the football game, um, it was everywhere. It was full-page spread, top to bottom, in the New Brunswick paper. It was in the New York Times. It was in Sports Illustrated. I mean, we were just blown away, and we said, oh, my God. That was just the first game. Next week, we're going to be on Monday night Frisbee. You know, I mean, and and the next game was friends and family. You know. <laughs> it, it, it sounds, it just, unbelievable is the right word. It just sounds so surreal. You know, the the article was talking about perhaps up to a thousand fans. Were you like aware of Ultimate before coming to Rutgers uh, that that was a thing? Or was it kind of like, hey, this is, these are the rules and... How how official were the rules? Like, did everyone did everyone on that on that parking lot understand the rules to be the same thing, or or was it developed to that level, or or what? Everyone on the parking lot understood because the uh, they all had pretty solid connections to the uh, to the Columbia Group and the New Jersey High School League. So yeah, okay, uh, that was all pretty pretty well established for me when I got to. To Rutgers, I had I had only seen Ultimate in Goldie Norton's book, that was the first book on uh, frisbee sports, and Ultimate was mentioned in there. I knew of it vaguely, but I had spent years at home playing frisbee football, yeah. which was essentially the same throw and catch deal. So when I met Irv, and we went out to play catch. He said, oh, my, you're going to like Ultimate. You're very big. <laughs> yeah. And already throw and catch. This is going to be good. Yeah. And, and it turns out it was good because, uh, I mean, for, for people that don't know, I've, this is the perfect time to tell this story, I guess, because you were named the the MVP of that inaugural game. Caught It said you caught 10 goals and threw for something like six more. And uh, and Rutgers ultimately won the game. And And it sounds like. Your your moniker, your nickname, Stork, was just like organically generated by the fans on that day, right? Where they were just Stork, 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 like, and you were like, "What are they even? Who, why are they saying Stork?" How how long is your show, Date? As long as as long as okay. you've got. Okay. Fast forward uh, a number of years later, Irv and I had just won the World Freestyle Championship. We're doing halftime for the. For the Philadelphia 76ers at the Spectrum. 
we do the halftime. We come off, and the the guy who's the promotions guy said, "Oh, you guys were great. You guys were great." I I went to Rutgers. You know, oh, cool. You know, he says, "Do you know how you got your nickname Stork?" I said, "Well, uh, in the first game, you know, people started chanting." chanting stork and that's how i got named he says no do you know exactly how you got it i said well i don't know tell me he said well i was in a fraternity house that was on the street by the field and we were watching the game and we saw you and i said to the brothers hey man that dude looks like a stork let's start (laughs) chanting and so i named you i named you and, and when they took you out and we started chanting, stork, 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 and they brought you back in, then everybody started chanting. That was my bed sheet hanging in the second half that said, the hell with McGovern, stork for president. That was my bed. Uh, oh, my God. I, I, you know, needless to say, I just had to pinch myself and say, is this really happening? I can't believe that he waited till after your halftime show to let that story out. I feel like I wouldn't be able, like, as soon as I was in contact with you, like, oh, so you're going to come here and do this halftime? I'd be like, hey, hey, you're a stork. I got to tell you this. It was, uh, I mean, people say you're supposed to, you know, get your nickname through some mystical uh, process, and that'll do for me. Yeah, I'll say. To, to be in the very first game ever, first contest ever, and in the win, Rutgers also strangely won the first football game ever in 1869 also by two goals or two points uh it's kind of even an ultimate now i played ultimate a long time and i still don't really know whether i want to call it goals or points i feel like points but whatever you want to do but yeah incredible uh to think that uh that that you were there for that and then you know even as you were saying freestyle world championship kind of like i i don't you'll be able to fill me in on this, but like the idea of even having an overall tournament, which we've kind of touched on on this show, a, a lot of our listeners obviously much newer and much more disc golf centric, but the the idea of an event that has like seven or eight events, like accuracy, distance, self-caught flight events, freestyle, golf, all that stuff. Like the idea of even doing that is, is a lot to do with you, isn't it? Well, we developed the Octad at, at Rutgers, it was the the first of the the big multi-event meets. Uh, Berkeley, the Berkeley Frisbee Group, had multi-event tournaments earlier that included MTA, distance. They might have had accuracy. I'm not sure, but but the big game week uh, featured that. But we extended it to eight, and I was essentially coming off of. The uh, growing up with my my dad was both football and track and field coach, and so I had kind of an image in my mind of a uh, like a decathlon, if you yeah. will, yeah. that would test a number of different skills. And so that's when like Gary Subert and Flash Eberly and I put together this eight event uh, opportunity for people to come and play and compare compare their skills and at the time we were just starting to publish uh flying disc world and so we publicized it to our vast uh audience of 100 120 readers and a surprising number of them uh came and played and we really had uh many many of the very best 
overall players came to it. But a thing for for our listeners now to know is that if they have any interest in trying this sometime, and there are places to do it. Virginia State is a, is a perfect example of it. Uh, if you're playing pretty good golf, you've already got a great start on the skill set for lots of the events. I'm not saying that you're ready to freestyle, and you may need to spend a little time in DDC, but if you're if you're throwing well, that's a great start at being a pretty solid overall player. I've I've competed in one, and it was a long time ago. I think like 2001 or two. I was in high school, uh, and it was great. It's it's. I haven't. Uh, I would someday. I'll have to try again. It was. I would need to sharpen my skills on a lot of that stuff. But it it is a cool idea, and yeah, just it is a. A fun thing to think about to test so many different dynamics and different disc types and angles and throwing styles and then obviously freestyle throws a whole nother wrench in it because i don't have really i don't have much i bring to the table there maybe a little bit but cool that's really incredible to think that that was just kind of like a you know something that was developing on the west coast and the east coast but just just kind of like on a you know not not a whim a whim sounds too uh casual but that you guys just kind of came up with that idea and got everyone you know and what essentially is like the equivalent of an email list you know you were making like a magazine publication but that just because you didn't have any easier way to keep people abreast of what was going on in in disc sports right 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 and i mean when i look back on it i mean i was working at the working i was working at the rutgers mental health center just to be clear uh i was employed there and um we lived there as well. <laughs> and so I had the keys to the duplicating room. And that was a large part of how we floated the budget for the magazine. I oh, don't nice. know if anybody was keeping count of the materials in there, but uh, let's just say our budget for uh, printing materials was quite low. <laughs> wow. <Well, laughs> so then, okay, so... Uh... The the I guess we got to go to this 1974 AFDO, which was that part of that same Octad event, or is that something else? No, uh, the the Octad, uh, the Rochester group came down to Octad, including Jim Palmieri, and part of what we talked about when he came down was this upcoming event that he was planning this American Flying Disc Open. And the deal was that he was going to, wait for it, give away a brand new car. And the thing about Palmieri is that he's, I call him the second most enthusiastic person in disc sports. Tom Schott is first. <laughs> uh, and, and then there's Jim. And so people were kind of taking it with a grain of salt that... You know, everything's true about the AFDO except for the brand new car, you know, and we didn't know whether it was really going to happen or not. But uh, that was completely a Rochester event. But, of course, everybody who was at Octed was a pretty strong candidate to come up for this other event that was golf and DDC. Those two events combined. Okay. To, to win the car. And and so... Uh, we prepared for that because again, you're kind of looking at it 
so early in the going, you're thinking, man, this thing is is really growing. I mean, we got we got 25 new subscribers to the magazine last month, and now there's a tournament to to give away a brand new car. I mean, the sky's the limit with this thing. I mean, it's wild. Uh, and so we went up to the tournament. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know, you did well. You you it, you won the golf portion by 13 throws. Do you do you recall how many rounds it took you to build to build a 13 throw lead? It was it was three three rounds, I believe, and I was absolutely gobsmacked. I I couldn't <laughs> believe it because real serious players, better athletes than I, were there. Victor Malafronti and Kirkland and John Connolly and Bruce Coger and uh, Doug Correa and people that, I, I mean, I don't know what the the betting line was, but I don't think it included included me. And uh, But it turned out that I had a number of things going for me. One is that I had more ball golfing experience under my belt uh, having played with dad for all those years and a lot of the other players didn't really they were they were maybe superior throwers but their course management thought process really wasn't as advanced the other thing was Palmieri's solution to finishing the hole because at Octad we had simply ribboned trees that was that was our not, and they were all trees. At least it was organized, you know. So, but Palmieri had a a square box on the ground that I guess was maybe I don't know five inches high and three feet on the side. That's probably close to the dimension. Wow! So and, very very short. Oh yeah, very very short, and nobody other than the Rochester people had ever seen it before. And so I'm kind of looking at that and I'm thinking, well, how, what's my solution to this? And so my solution was a, on anything that you would now call a, a short approach shot, I'm throwing a vertical reverse, uh, I don't know what you would call it. It's like, like a, a backspin, a, like, a, like the sharpest hyzer ever backspin. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a, a, a mini spike hyzer. But not, but thrown from the same side, fr- thrown from the right side of your body. Like, so you're, you're just like back spinning it totally vertical. Well, big point. I'm left-handed. Okay. Sorry. That's <laughs> that. I should have, I should have had that. That should have been in my research. I'm sure. More, left more le- side of the body. More left-handed than anyone you know. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, yes. So it's over vertical, essentially. Yes. It, you know, it's over vertical. And so it's dive bombing and occasionally staying in the, in the basket. Uh, in the box, or if not, it's close. Did it have to stay in the box? Oh yeah, yeah. You okay, so it's it. like it's got walls, mm-hmm. and then it's like hollow in the middle, but it's yes. only like a five-inch wall. Correct. It's wow. Just a, it's a it's a fort, a little fort. Yeah. Okay. So I'm throwing these these vertical spikes. Well, like Victor is is throwing you know backhands in there. It's like trying to land a jet plane on a on a card table. Yeah, I mean it's it skips off the edge and goes. My minor staying close, and then okay, so that's the second factor: ball golf, the this spike eyes are, and then when you're close, 
the rule was that you couldn't have any contact in front of your lie until you had released a disc. And so, hey, they're giving away a car. So I just said, I'm doing a full facial and and dunking it because I also was a basketball player at the time. I'm yeah. dunking it every time. So I came off that first round, you know, like I had been in mud wrestling and I'm, I'm just dunking this thing every time. So no missed short putts and, you know, two meters tall. So pretty good reach. So you and could almost dive forward and you could leave, leave the ground. No. No, you had to you had to stay on your lie, but you okay. couldn't touch you couldn't touch any spot in front of it. So you could so, like fall forward and and as long as the disc was down before your body, you were good. Right. And I remember coming off of the field and going to Palmyra and I said, Jim, uh, we don't want to do this for the rest of our lives. Uh, we, <laughs> we can't have falling putting. Okay, you can't you can't fall and putt. You got to stay behind the lie and establish your balance. He said, "Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Let's do that." <laughs> but not in time to stop you from taking a car. Oh no, 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 no. not of course not. And what cu- what was the car? Uh, it was a Datsun, a beautiful green. Maybe it was originally for the military. I don't know. Uh, a beautiful green Datsun B two ten, and just to tell you my level of confidence. Uh, my wife and I had just bought a brand new Mustang a month before. So that tells you how confident I was. That you were um, going to get in there and win a car. And, and so I won the car, and I'm proud to say I kept it, came back, sold the damn Mustang, and I kept the Datsun B210 and, in fact, drove it out to California when I came to take the uh, IFA job. Wow. So was uh, was Ed Hedrick out there at that event? Uh, in 74 or had you, you had met him at that point, I assume I, I had corresponded with him, uh, but he was not at that event. Uh, Ed was kind of skeptical of, of the event, uh, which is reasonable because Jim, you know, was very enthusiastic. Yeah. And, uh, so I think Ed was kind of wondering whether this is real or not. Uh, Ed did come to later AFDOs, but not not to the first one. But he definitely heard about it, and uh, the results were written up in the IFA news, and pretty much everybody was talking about it. So so he knew, and the next day AFD, AFDO, he was definitely there. Yeah, I think everyone would be talking about it still now. I mean, a brand new car is no small prize, I mean, you know, even in by any standard, but for, really for any sport at that kind of level, anything where you aren't talking about actual like contracted you know big time big four professionals well pretty adjusted, pretty incredible adjusted for today's dollars it's a tesla s model yeah that yeah that makes sense <laughs> right it, yeah it's like that's that's pretty incredible not quite still i mean it must have been just a shocking thing to to be able to to have come out of there and win that and i guess those other guys must have been pretty surprised to go down 13 throws to a Somebody they maybe didn't even really think of as a, a contender. It, I, I'm sure they were, and there's no way around it. It was well. It's hard to compare the first. I've been a lucky guy. That that first Rutgers Princeton game, once in a lifetime. The uh, <laughs> the the day at AFDO, once in a lifetime. I mean, my my folks were there. Uh, all my good buddies were there. 
I mean, Gary Subert, as we drove up, we drove up in one one car and all the way up, he's going, don't worry, Stork, there's going to be plenty of room on the way back. You know, we're (laughs) laughing. Yeah, right. right. (laughs) And by gosh, there was plenty of room on the way back. Wow. (laughs) So then uh, not not too long after that was when you made that move to California, right? To work, basically to work at Whammo and to be uh, involved more with what Ed was doing. Yeah, um, I was doing uh, Flying Disc World magazine and doing the Octad and starting to, I guess, get on his radar a bit. And uh, he was hearing the rumblings of of this kind of emerging activity that was beyond just IFT, the, the ancient guts tournament uh, up in Michigan. Uh, which was the main activity that uh, that IFA was was focusing on, and so we got to talking pretty regularly, and I'm now like almost done with my grad program, and ABD you know haven't haven't completed yet, but he says, well, would you like to come out and uh, be the uh, the director of the International Frisbee Association. Which was a position that Ed held at that time, or, or it was a brand new position? It was, it was a, well, Irv Lander, Irv Lander held the position, uh, and and Irv was an, a PR agent, essentially, for, for Whammo. And to a large extent, the IFA and the IFA News were pretty clearly PR efforts of, of Whammo to, of course, promote the, the Frisbee product. And Ed was ready to kind of turn the gauge and essentially make it real. You know, he wanted to, to reach out. He saw Ultimate coming. He saw Disc Golf coming. He saw these multiple event tournaments coming and East Coast interest. And I think he just came to the conclusion, as did Irv. Uh, it, it's not like I didn't supplant Irv. Uh, Irv was ready to step back to the PR role. And uh, Ed was ready to to make it real. And, and he decided, I guess, that, uh, that I was the guy to help him do that. Yeah. So would it be fair to say... Uh, and I, I, I guess I've kind of gotten this impression, but would it be fair to say that like early high level disc sports, a lot of it was sort of like promoted and, and pushed forward and funded by Whammo essentially to like make a commercial almost like to have really amazing skills and to be able to show that to people like Frisbees are really fun. Get a Frisbee. And and that was kind of like sort of the beginnings of, of a lot of that stuff because it was like, we're the only ones that make Frisbees and we need them to be fun and we need them to look cool and we want kids to buy them, basically. Well, definitely. And you got to give Ed a, a lot of credit for that because there, there's lots of ways to promote things. And he developed the intercollegiate model when there really wasn't any intercollegiate play. You know, when we first saw the pro Intercollegiate, we thought, well, there must be college teams. Uh, no, not really. That was kind of just aspirational. That <laughs> was the name. Only. That was the name of the disc, the Pro. But it it had on the package the intercollegiate model, and of course they kind of ripped off the Olympic rings, 
again, a kind of an homage to, well, it's a real sport. It's an international sport. Yeah. Uh, and so all of those things were, were going on. And, well, just from the very beginning, the very beginning, you turn the underside of a Pluto platter and it says, play catch, invent games. I mean, that was the charge. The charge was, hey, invent games with us. Let's see, let's see what you can do. And um, we we took that pretty seriously. Yeah, I'll say I'm glad that you guys did. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing how how much, how much has grown from that that early uh, that early time. You know, just like it's it just doesn't. It's it's a it's a testament to how well it's all worked and how many people have adopted it. That even I, as like a total insider of disc golf and and to some extent disc sports, it still kind of blows my mind to imagine like, oh, so this guy just sort of like invented DDC and he came over and said, hey, you guys, let's try this that I tr that I just thought of, and it, you know, and that really wasn't even that long ago. I mean, it's it's just sort of a, an amazing thing for me to think about and, and to have the opportunity to talk to you who you know, has kind of almost had a seat at the table for ultimate and overalls and disc golf and the genesis of all these things that now seem like, you know, you know, is my career and is it the career of thousands, you know, among all the people that are in manufacturing and, and, uh, retail and playing and, and, you know, disc sports in general, it's, it's, it's just amazing what, what has been achieved. It was one of the most exciting things about the job and I mean when I when I took the job to come in and be in that role it it wasn't taken lightly because there was a career path ahead of me and I was just about to end you know six years of of work there at Rutgers and move on to to the goal was to like dad kind of be a college professor and maybe coach tennis or you know who knows what yeah. But but when I when I looked at it I I said, well, I can't spend the rest of my life looking over my shoulder and thinking, what would it have been like it if I if I'd done that? You know, if I'd tried that. I've got to go at least try it. And then when I came, it was just such a a wonderful opportunity. I mean, just and incredible chance to do so many interesting creative things uh that i mean i the i just feel so blessed and lucky to have had that opportunity and to have had all of the people that i got the chance to work with over the years all of the enthusiasts that were so supportive because as you said especially in the early going there it was a, a naked promotion of Whammo to to build that product line, and so you could see that obviously people would have some questions in their mind about whether things were being done in the optimal uh, development of the sports. So it took a it took a kind of a nimble uh, a nimble programming of it to have it adjust to what the needs were so that Whammo was getting its, uh, its best, best interests served and we hoped that we were continually serving the best interests of the sport. And that was challenging at times, but uh, I think when we look back on it, uh, it was a pretty, pretty productive era. Yeah, we had Dave Dunapace on our show uh, a few weeks back and he kind of 
credited you with helping Ed realize the difference between Ultimate and its one disc per 28 players on a given day and disc golf and it's 10 or 12 discs per player on a given day you know and the and the the business model ramifications of of that situation you know and that and and dave made it sound like ed was sort of like resistant to disc golf early on and you know he he, yeah he basically credited you with kind of uh changing ed's thinking well the the interesting thing is that ed and i weren't at whammo for real long together because he left whammo oh i want to say maybe two or three months after i came uh and it and it was interesting because when i came out i mean i didn't have i didn't have anywhere to stay uh my my wife was back in social work school at rutgers and so i came out so i stayed he adopted me i mean i stayed with with his family and i mean I'm an East Coast boy. You know, I didn't even know what an avocado was. All at once, I'm <laughs> seeing guacamole on toast, and everybody on the whole block was these bronzed, blonde people, and we would ride into Whammo in, in his big floater uh, convertible every day. I'm going, <laughs> yes, this is working out. This is working out really well. Uh, but but then he had his differences with, uh, with Whammo management, and and decided to leave Whammo. And so we had the conversation where I said, geez, Ed, you know, if if you want me to go, I'll I'll go too. I don't want to undercut you. Uh and he said, nah, nah, you you stay. You're already out here. Uh, which he may have regretted in the future when we had disagreements down the line. But uh once he had gone then I was Mr. Frisbee to Whammo, and they're going, well, well, what do you need? You know, magazine, regional directors, uh, NAS events, uh, bands for the demonstrators. I mean, it was, it was a dream situation where we could hardly even keep up. And Joe K. Howe was there. She was there when I arrived. She became my assistant, and we started to hire people. And all at once, uh, we had the thing going, and uh, it was it was quite amazing. Needless to say, I was not getting much done on my thesis. <laughs> I th- I can kind of uh, understand your experience. I think a little bit in that I I was also you know just kind of getting my my bachelor's degree and just going through college, following in the footsteps of my parents who were research assistants at Oregon State University, and just kind of getting my environmental science degree while like playing frisbee disc golf and ultimate you know on the side Mm -hmm. and i often sort of joke that i got as good as i did by accident you know in a way it wasn't like a career it wasn't like a legitimate career path in my in my view it was just like a hobby and it just more and more opportunities started opening up in front of me to the point that i never really did anything with my degree you know to where i just at least to this point you know i've just kind of taken more and more disc sport opportunities and it's been going fantastically, but you know, not, not to directly compare myself to what you've achieved in that space, but just to think about, you know, that I had this, I had a totally different plan. And I think that's probably pretty common in, in disc sports because you'd be a bit crazy to uh, throw, put all your eggs in that basket uh, beforehand, you know, and just 
target a career in disc sports, especially in 1975 or whenever that all happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, I'm sure that you find just as I have that, uh, that that training and the, uh, the work that you did, uh, still ends up being useful in terms of, uh, of the skills that, that oh, you developed. Yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt. I don't regret any of that time that I spent. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I needed that degree, you know, technically, I guess the only thing I've used it for was you needed to have a, a college degree to teach at Oregon state university where I, then I started teaching disc golf and ultimate and other PE classes, which was really fun and, and allowed me to practice a lot of disc golf, to be honest. <laughs> So, uh, you know, that was a, a something that I technically, I guess, used that used that degree for, and I'm sure I'll use it again before uh, all said and done. But yeah, definitely, totally agree that uh, the skills and the even just life skills that I learned in those years uh, continue to help me all the time. But yeah, bringing it back, I think uh, to disc golf, I gotta hear it from you the the story, the origin of the two meter rule, because obviously the the rumors swirl around. But I gotta hear from you how that happened. Uh, octet, that first octet that we were uh, discussing, uh, I was going over the the rules, and some of which were were quite interesting actually in retrospect. Uh, I was always trying to build athleticism into the the various events, and so the rule on a lie was that let's say you were behind a mandatory, you could come running up to the lie take off as if it were a broad jump line and fly forward if you released the disc before you landed. That would be interesting. That was that was the rule. Uh, but anyway, another of the rules, because if the, the disc got stuck up in a tree or a bush, the question was, how do you deal with it? And so um, I said, okay, well, the rule is that if it's in the structure somehow that you can get your foot up to put it where the disc is, if you can put your foot there, then you can call that your lie and you play on. You have to put your foot up there and play on. Well, okay, I'm describing this. And Palmieri, who's like about, I don't know, what is he, four four foot five or seven, something <laughs> like that. He's, he's down there somewhere in a crowd going, that's not fair. That's not fair. You're so tall. You know, I said, okay, okay, okay. Um, how about, uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, how about let's make it, I'm two meters tall. I'll always be there. So, uh, to measure it. So let's say if it's over, if it's over two meters, then it's a penalty stroke. You bring it straight down. If it's under two meters, you drop it to the ground and you play on. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, fine. So that's where the rule came from. And it and continues to this day. It's well, That's just incredible. It's had its problems. Uh, there was a period of time when it was optional. Um, I, uh, well, finally, we'll have something for your listeners to argue about. I'm a fan of the rule because I think it adds risk amplitude to uh, to a hole. Now, I know that people are out there mumbling, you know, it's random, it's random. Well, it is random, but it when you look out there in the fairway, there's a bit of a lottery that you're looking at and you can you can decide to put yourself at risk in that lottery or to play it safe. 
And I'm always hoping that holes will give you an opportunity to take a risk and save a stroke, or uh, if you don't succeed in that, that you will lose a stroke. I like to see strokes change hands. Uh, and incidentally, we should talk about whether they're strokes or throws. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and and that amplitude is uh, is enhanced by by having if you throw and it's stuck thirty feet up in a tree, I say that is not a successful throw that you should be able to just bring down without penalty and and play on. But I know there are legitimate arguments on the other side too. But uh, that's yeah. What I, I think. I think I I largely agree with you. I think um I guess I tend to like it more the more consistently grabby the trees are. So like often it's a rule these days in California and I feel like they have those kind of low oaks that are like really good. It's of course like De La Viega, you hit a tree, you're like you're you're like all worried because it's that likely that it will hold on to it. Yeah. And so then that's a little less random, which is nice. But I tend to agree, you know, if you decided to throw all your throws under a height of two meters, you wouldn't get very many penalties if you wanted to play underneath well, than if you I'm want to thinking, go up and over. I'm thinking more of those air routes that no, of uh, course, yeah, that are, of course. That are risky. But uh, that whole rough of the green question and, and random is a, an endless uh, debate that is a fun one, but uh, there's so many things that that happen. I mean, when you watch watch people play, and just uh, who was it that just recently skipped off the top of the basket and into water? I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, going, geez, that seemed like a pretty good shot to me. So there's always going to be some of that baked into to the game, and uh, we just have to to understand that that that's going to happen. But uh, I say you could argue either side of it. Yeah, it reminds me of a uh, just a, a video I just saw the other day. Just a chance to shout out a friend of the show and fellow two meter human, Big Germ. He, I saw him throw his final shot at Waco just a couple weeks ago, four hundred and sixty eight feet over the water the whole way, and he just hit the cage on the fly straight into the water. Just that's, just a a bad break. That's the one, right? That's the one that I was thinking of. A tough break because it because it would have been one of those sports center hole in ones, you know, like four hundred and sixty eight feet over water. That's a speaking of once in a lifetime events. That's one of them. Yes. And yeah, to bounce off in and go and go in. But I, I think I heard Jarrett coming in. What do you got? Yeah. Jarrett? Well, I just wanted to point out to my friends that that we play with. I don't want you to pay attention to any of this. It's still play it as you lie. You still have to climb up the tree and shoot it from out of there. So that's that's how we've always been doing it. And uh, so I, you guys just disregard everything that these two greats have, have spoken about. We're still playing it as it lies. See, and play, catch, invent games. I mean, invent games. You're you're just on that on that leading edge now, Jarrett. You're taking the baton from from Dan, and now you're taking it in your own direction, inventing new games. I'm doing what I can. That's it. I'm just doing as, what I can. As Perfect. Long as you're within your thirty seconds, I I think you're good. <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, um, I guess uh, I got I got to throw in a question that came to us from our last guest, from Sam Ferrens. And he told me to ask you if you had had any kind of recommendations for maybe like a hot air balloon tour in the in the region of Helsingborg, Sweden. If you had any su- suggestions for for a, a place, <laughs> that guy. The, it's funny because when we went to the first uh, uh, championship in Helsingborg, 
um, I, I can remember thinking black that my 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 kind of fantasy was you know a room with a young blonde and it turned out it was Sam you know I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I think it ended that I was his uh, uh, his chaperone that his parents were very trusting um, that was a really fun trip with him and man what a talent that guy was at that age I mean Jeez, I mean, I, I realize that we've got some some young phenoms that are that are pretty amazing right now, but that guy, I mean, what did he weigh? One thirty or something? And I mean, he just was a whip. It, it was it was fantastic to see him him grow up and and get to be such a, a dominant force, and of course now such a, a tremendous. Uh, key to the industry really yeah yeah he was it was really fun getting to talk to him and, and hear that story about that money going missing for for a number of months and and all the rumors swirling around but yeah finally he did get his due for uh for winning that title and it was there in in sweden where you guys kind of like started with diff is that the the world flying disc federation is that correct uh one of the first most substantial meetings was as part of that championship yes when uh uh, Charlie Mead was put in place as the uh, as the president, the the initial president, and there had been a number of kind of fits and starts moving toward that, but uh, that was the most substantial uh, collection of people that moved the project forward. Yes, and 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 now I, you know WIFDF still exists now, and I don't know that our listeners will will be aware of it, but it's kind of like the. I mean, again, you'll you'll be able to correct me here, but the, kind of like the organization that's like shepherding and stewarding like the w- official world records and and things like that, you know, among across all these age groups and that kind of thing. Is that kind of their main the main uh, function of that organization at this time? It's it's much uh, much broader than that. Uh, WFDF is really the interface of disc sports to the to the world sports community. Uh, they have a relationship with the uh, the IOC, okay, and okay. also with World Games. They uh, manage all of the international ultimate play, and and in fact have committees in in each of the disciplines. WFDF uh, annually does an international team event in in disc golf. Uh, it it manages the the international guts championships. And also sanctions the the world overall. The you mentioned the world records. I have been the archivist for for WFDF for many years. I was the uh, the president off and on for a number of years, as was Bill Wright and and a number of other people. But the one constant is that I have been the archivist for the records since. Um, since 70 i guess i guess we began collecting them for flying disc world then moved it on to frisbee world and i just entered a couple of records today so i've been (laughs) i've been doing that uh continuously more than any other thing in my life i think now that i think about it wow it's a pretty cool, cool project to be able to keep all that in one place and be able to kind of, I've definitely spent some time just reading down the list and going, oh man, that's been, that record's been standing 20 years or just kind of looking at all the different distances and 
you know, maximum time aloft or whatever else it is. It's interesting to take a look at for sure. Well, take a look at distance under non-human. Okay. That is, we have a distance record from a sea lion at the St. Louis Zoo. Uh, and he or she, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, uh, holds the record for non-human distance. But I'll give you one little interesting uh, world record story that Krister Fuglesong uh, was a Swedish player who became one of their astronauts. And so he was going up and was about to do an international uh, broadcast from the space station. And he got in contact with the Svenska Frisbee Verbundet and said, I want to set the, the MTA record while I'm up <laughs> in the shuttle. And so my friends at uh, SFF uh, contacted me and he said, hey, Krister, it wants to do the MTA record. Uh, can you sanction it? I said, oh, this is awkward. No gravity. Um, hmm, my friend Donnie Kane has had the record for low these many years of like 17 seconds, something like that. Uh, let me get back to you. Um, so I'm going, what? What are we going to do here? Uh, it, it could be like five minutes. It could be forever. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I in a in a kind of a, a blaze of of recognition, I went back to them and said, "Okay, we're going to approve him for the intergalactic record." Yes. Okay, it's going to be the first of the intergalactic records. I'm <laughs> sure there'll be records for other planets in the future, but right now, intergalactic. So he did it on international television, he tossed it up, didn't catch the first one, hit against the wall, tossed up another with a little bit of spin. He was kind enough to have it go, I forget how long it went, but you know, probably four times Donnie's record, and he caught it. We verified him for the intergalactic record, and then I immediately went back to the SSF and I said, okay, he's on an EBA tomorrow. Have him throw a distance throw. Okay, when he's out there, just have them zing one. And they said, well, but but how will we measure it? Okay, I'll enter it as to be determined. <laughs> and he couldn't get it past his, his, his damn people in the administration said, oh, we don't want any space junk out there. Oh, my gosh. You know, everything that's floating around out there, they, they couldn't have one ABR extra floating out there. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> We're going to have a chance. Maybe talk to Elon Musk or somebody. I feel like he would support the uh, the, the Frisbee record up in space. Oh, absolutely. That that sounds like him. He might allow a throw. All right. Well, we, I think we can get there. I, I don't want to take too much of your time. I know Jared has a, a fan questions coming. I guess the last thing I want to talk to you about is, uh, you know, are you able – are you still throwing some discs these days? Or what is what is what disc sports can you – do you still enjoy now? Let me tell you something, Nate. During this pandemic, I, I, have, I have become more fascinated and driven about throwing than any time in my career. Wow. I have been throwing every evening, and I have determined to rebuild my throw from scratch. Uh, I I have never been a good distance thrower, 
And I have been so fascinated with the emerging kinesiology uh, and the mechanics of, of throwing that I have torn apart every component of my throwing. And I have been out there. I have never been more fired up about throwing than I am now. My wife, I'm driving her crazy because <laughs> I am continually having her video me. And then I'm walking around in the living room going, did that seem faster? Did now when I now watch carefully, does this look like the power pocket of the video we're looking at? Look, as I pull, does it look to you like I'm leading with the elbow? Is my hip going first? When I plant my foot, do you think I'm turning on my heel or am I turning more? I'm telling you, I, I am just as excited about throwing as I have ever been. And uh, I'm not saying that I've turned the world around and that I'm ready to break the record, but it has been so satisfying to clean up problems that I've had, mainly from my freestyle and ultimate background, that I was doing so many things wrong. Uh, and I've had a good many friends in the sport who have helped me and looked at videos, and I'm just eating up all these things that are online. You know, I mean, I'm looking at Ezra and going, I've got to go to the gym. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's the problem. I need my forearms to be much, much bigger. Yeah, I've uh, I've caught myself thinking the same thing. Wow. And 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 so I I I've just been real really into it and and watching the pros like you throw and make it look so effortless and and the women players the way they just whip it out there. And, and I say, I'm going to find the secret to this. It's a bullwhip. I'm going to learn how to crack it. So the answer is, yes, I am way into it. That is awesome. That's, so it's safe to say you're seeing some results already, it sounds like. I, I, I am. But I'll tell you, the main thing about it is that it feels so good. It really yeah. feels so good. It is tremendously challenging because there's so many components in comparison with throwing implements in track and field, I mean, I know still that I still don't have attack angle right because discs that that should be turning for me are not consistently turning. And so I'm still struggling with that. But the the fun is in the battle. And of course, the the interesting completion of it is that we're also working with my grandkids we're five and seven. And so Tyler and I, Tyler's my son, who's a very good thrower, once was third in distance to Sandstrom and Vote uh, in the world. And we're teaching our five and seven-year-olds right now. And they're just like little sponges. I mean, my seven-year-old granddaughter is already has much better mechanics than I do, which is frustrating. But yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's 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 just the greatest thing ever. Really. Yeah, and if, I mean, if anybody was going to question whether uh, you know it's like a, a lifetime sport and whether you can ever like the beauty of of all sports, really. But I think I don't know why it is with disc sports even more so, but just that you can 
you just never master it. You just keep going and you keep going and it's like you're tweaking things and you're changing things and it's like you can never stop wanting more from yourself, which is like kind of what makes it so special, I think, that you always want to keep coming back because it's like there's always uh, there's always tomorrow to, to go and throw a, a better one. I'll tell you, my dad was still throwing competitively in his 90s. Uh, he had the 95-year-old distance mark until Don Shin came along and smashed it. <laughs> yeah, uh, wow. But uh, it it extended dad's life many, many years. I mean, he was he was excited to play overall uh, in his 70s, his 80s, his early 90s. Uh, and and I aspire to that myself. I I, I take I take that as my lead and we got some pretty good genes. So uh, I I hope to break Don's record. That would be great. Wow. That's great. That's so cool. I'm smiling big now just hearing that that you're out there every day tweaking things and still working. That's cool. Jared, I'm sure I'm sure we got some fan questions, huh? I don't I don't want to keep Dan too too crazy long, even though I feel like we're barely scratching the surface on all this stuff. But uh, you know, obviously, we would have you back anytime you would like. I'll probably say that again at the close of the episode. But uh, let's get to some fan questions and, and see what people want to know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first thing I need to know, though, Dan, is uh, how how far is that sea lion throwing? You know, I'm gonna have to look it up, but I think it's probably something like. If I had to guess, I would guess 20 meters. Wow. All right, so I can beat a sea lion. All right, no, that's all I really <laughs> needed to know. Um, okay, uh, so we uh, we did, we got a, a ton of uh, fan questions. We won't bombard you with a bunch of them, but we did uh, cherry pick some of the ones that we thought would be fitting. Uh, one of the things that we do here, Dan, is we let fans send in uh, audio recorded questions, uh, and we did get a few of those as well. Um, so let's start off with an audio question. Hey, guys, huge fan of the show. Been listening since day one. My question is for Dan. What is your favorite thing about this recent disc golf explosion? Is it the media coverage, the competition increase, the growth of more brands, or something different entirely? I would love to know. Thanks so much. Wow. Uh, You know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, Steve Dodge was on the PDGA board uh, a number of years ago, and he came in strong. And his first meeting, I think he was sitting right next to me, and, and he laid out this big program for, get this, disc golf that people could watch uh, film up. And I thought to myself, oh, man, who's going to sit and watch disc golf? People want to play disc golf. They're not going to want to watch disc golf. <laughs> I, I mean, I was so wrong. Oh, terribly wrong steve if you're out there i'm sorry buddy i was wrong uh it it is so fascinating to watch the emergence of the the personalities the 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 talents the the abilities so i guess the answer to the the question is the the exposure but but the exposure part and parcel of the exposure of course is is what's going on on the screen and of course we're we're just beginning i mean we're 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 just beginning but uh i i just find it so entertaining 
to watch that uh, I guess that's the biggest surprise for me because I didn't think it would be entertaining to watch. I thought I'd just like to play it. Yeah, no, that's a that's a perfect answer. Uh, our second audio question uh, came in specifically for Nate uh, from a big fan of the show, but I'd like to maybe hear you uh, weigh in on this one as well, Dan. So uh, we'll go to our second audio question, and uh, I'd like to hear from both of you guys on this one. Hey, Nate and Jarrett, this is Steve from Seattle. I'm loving listening to the podcast every week, so thanks so much. And Nate, I've also got a young daughter. She's lukewarm on playing disc golf with me, but she loves champs versus chumps. So sometimes she'll come out with me, but on the condition that I narrate my own shots a la Nate Sexton, and she'll get a good belly laugh if I hit a tree or get a roll away. And Nate, my question is, have you had your hand in designing any courses? And what's your process when you're looking at a chunk of property and envisioning the perfect layout for that community? Thanks again. I think my my answer will be a little bit disappointing because I, I haven't really done like a start to finish course design. Not that, and I, I plan to, um, you know, my long-term dream is to like own my own property with, with a course or two or three or however many I can get. But, uh, but yeah, I've designed certainly holes and, and new positions for holes and extended par threes into par fours at, at some of my home courses over the years. But, uh, but yeah, as far as process, I think, uh, I think I'll, I'll know more about that in in the coming years but i think for me it's like identifying like the can't miss opportunities of like a signature hole that of the on this property and then like designing around that i think it would be my my general philosophy would be like well you have to do this like if you once you've walked around the place and you've seen what it has to offer then it i think it will become pretty clear to you like the one that really excites you or the opportunity to throw off the top of this hill and go down towards this with the backdrop of this and so that I think would be like my number one thing. And then after that, it's just want, wanting it to have variety. You know, I think that's what makes the best courses is something that has uh, all kinds of variety as much as you can get in there with lefts and rights and straights and distance and hills. And, you know, the dream property would have, you know, water and all, all those different features that, that let it feel unique every hole you step up to. I think that uh, course designing is is probably some of the, best fun in the sport really the mo it's some of the most satisfying work that i've ever done and i'll i'll share with you one story about a a property up in the sierras that we designed a course for a number of years ago and i invited four friends to come and help me design it and we had a map and i gave each one of them a huge board with onion skin that laid over the map. And so they each went out, we all went out for three hours and drew our desired hole layouts, not trying to connect them, just laid out individual holes that we found. Then we brought them back together and laid all the onion skins over one another and saw where we had commonalities. We said, wow, we all saw, like you said, Nate, we all saw that throw from the top of the hill down there to, to behind the edge of the lake. That's a must. And so we circled all of those commonalities that we found, and then we linked them together. I think lots of times designers get into problems where they try to link them first, and then you end up with some weak links. And it's the only time I was able to do that process, but I, 
I really advise it. I mean, I think, I think it really works out well. And I say it, I think it's some of the best fun there is in the sport. Well, I love that idea. And I think my, my course design philosophy just changed and you do that. I think that, that sounds like the best yeah, way th- that works. You know, that sounds, another- that sounds like so much fun to be able to have people independently take a look and, and see where you guys agree. That's cool. Another thing about it is that in course design, there legitimately is an opportunity to give to people forever. Uh, my my dad and I designed a course in a little campground, Dogwood Acres in Pennsylvania, and dad funded it to put it in. It was really early, one of the first courses in Pennsylvania. They named it the Papa Jack course, and people play it every day. And in a very tangible way, he lives on there. And and that's a that's a gift that will continue to delight and challenge people hopefully forever. And there aren't that many things in life that you can do that provide that. So uh, I hope everybody who loves the game gets a chance to do some of that kind of work. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, Dale, we got a question on our Instagram uh, from Banjo Discoff. Uh, asks, why do you think there was such a drop-off on the popularity of disc sports after the, the mid to late 80s? You know, I I think that probably that was a gear shift because part of it was that that the, the years of the whammo running and owning everything were, were ending, and I think ending correctly. And when we shifted over to the individual sports driving on their own, that is when we had, at that point, it was uh, Ultimate on its own, prior to it being USA Ultimate, uh, and the PGA on its own, and the Freestyle Players Association on its own. And that gear shift took some time. Uh, and the net result is that the sport, I think, has come back stronger and better than than it could have been without that shift. But uh, probably it was inevitable that there was going to be a little bit of a flat spot there. Some of that flat spot also is because we moved from it being a kind of a fad uh, novelty to having to take its place as a legitimate member of the sports community. So if you look at the newspaper articles through that era, it was no longer, hey, flying saucers have come to Topeka. I mean, that story was already done. Now we had to do the hard work of being, hey, there's a new disc golf course in Topeka. It's a legitimate recreational activity. There's a legitimate sport going on. Uh, that that was a harder battle, but uh, I think it was a transition that, that had to be made. Okay, awesome. Uh, now, Nate, I know you and some of our listeners are going to be a little shocked by this, but uh, we've got a question here uh, from Jarrett from Buffalo, and uh, he's uh, he wants to know when, obviously, Whammo and the Frisbee were the uh, – it was what everybody was using. It was how the game was being played. After Dave and the guys invented that beveled edge and Innova kind of broke in – 
was there ever any desire for Whammo or Frisbee to try to get involved in that kind of disc design to compete? Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, Whammo, Whammo, I, I was with them at the time. Uh, we had discs that were similar, like the 86 is still out there. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's, it's a, mainly relegated to being a putter now, but uh, the 86 was uh, an attempt on on Whammo's part to to have a more aerodynamic rim, uh, and pretty much pretty much anything that wanted to be competitive in golf after the uh, the developments that that Dave introduced, uh, anything that wanted to be a a driver or a mid range at that point had to have some improved aerodynamics. So uh, everyone had to follow. I mean that was a that was a pivotal breakthrough that that changed everything. So it, it was no longer no longer even feasible to have a a a blunt nosed high profile disc that was anything at that point. It was a it was a putter or approach disc. So yeah, one way or another, people had to go along. Now, of course, uh, some of the design of the of the rim, as they pointed out, was proprietary. So there were legal struggles about that as to what is too close, uh, and and a lot of those things were resolved uh, over time. But uh, yeah, Whammo wanted to to get involved. But but the thing is that I I don't think that Whammo uh, slash then then Mattel was ever really designed to be nimble enough to be truly competitive in the in the disc golf market because uh, it was such a specialty item produced by a specialty company. Uh, in fact, when I was at Mattel Sports for a period there, I had, uh, I had Innova design and produce for us some discs that we put out with, with Whammo labeling on it. You might remember the 44, the, the 78, the 77. Uh, all of those were discs that, that Innova produced under license for us because Whammo just really wasn't in a position to to do the kind of developmental work that that Innova was, and I mean when I told Whammo, well, you have to weigh every disc. Hmm, that didn't sound like a good fit for them. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. I mean, they they have so much else going on, you know, to be, try to compete with a a company that's trying to do only one thing. Yeah, just uh, you know another another strong question from that fella. Okay. Um, Coming in, uh, coming into our email, uh, Fernum asks, uh, of all the different sports, excuse, of all the different disc sports that you've participated in, which one is your favorite and why? So I guess he's talking about DDC and Ultimate and disc golf and what did you prefer the most and and why? Wow, I the, I guess the one that my favorite is the one that I just played last. But uh, for sheer visceral enjoyment, it's hard to beat on the beach with the right breeze and friends who know what they're doing. A freestyle jam with the right breeze is a pretty amazing thing. DDC at its best, I've had many people who have been around a long time who say you could take everything else away just leave me ddc 
uh, this is going to turn into a non-answer. Disc golf. <laughs> Disc golf. It's fine with me. When you're really in the groove, uh, there, it's hard to compare with disc golf, especially as a lifetime, ask Don Shin, a, a lifetime game. Disc golf, you can literally do forever. Being able to throw distance is like jumping over the edge of Niagara uh, in, in a barrel. I mean, there there must be no feeling like that. Uh, a a great MTA is truly an act of God, uh, and <laughs> there aren't too many games as good as Ultimate. Other than that, uh, did I answer? Did I answer that? I feel like that's the perfect answer because I mean, I think you know you're like approaching seventy years throwing. Like, how how can we expect you to have one favorite? You know, you you've tried it all and and enjoyed it all, and it's got to be in phases. You know, you got to have years where you're more committed to one discipline. And yeah, it's you. I don't think of you as a specialist. I think of you as a guy who's you know been there for all of it. Well, the real secret is, I really wish I was a guts player. <laughs> <laughs> I guts scares me. I, I I got that one. That one went right past me. I've seen people play it, and I never thought like, <laughs> oh man, play. I sure wish I could go play that. Did you say it went right past you? Very yeah, nice. well, that's that's a Nicely good that well, that would be a good joke. Yeah, Nicely but <laughs> that was accidental. Well, yeah. sometime, sometime when you can fit it into your busy schedules, you've got to go to IFT and and see and play in in IFT because. The, the International Frisbee Tournament, the Guts Championship, there's nothing like it. I mean, they are the rock stars of the sport. Yeah. And, Nate, you would be serious trouble on the offensive end. I can tell you, <laughs> they would not like that. But the bad news is they're throwing it back. Yes, definitely. I will tell you one thing that you've added from this podcast, Dan, is uh, Anna has messaged me and said that she is never saying disc golf again. She's only referring to it as space race from now on. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll know, I'll know what she's talking about as far as that goes. Um, We did get a, uh, a fun question in here uh, to the email. Uh, Glenn asks, with you playing through so many generations and seeing so many different incarnations of the discs, when you're out playing today, do you ever you ever bring out the oldies and toss them? Uh, I have I have some oldies in my bag. Um, in fact, I I just had to retire. I'd been throwing a gum pot putter for many many years. I mean, probably 30, 30 years. But when I was watching the putting championship this winter, I I laid out the cones in my backyard and I I couldn't reach from the longest station. And, and I came to the conclusion that it's just, those discs are too slow. So I'm now trying to discover a, a faster, a faster putter. Uh, and I had been approaching with a 50 mold, uh, a, a one of the world-class discs, and I just switched that out for a Zephyr. So uh, I don't have any any truly, truly, really old discs left in there. Uh, but but yeah, especially for freestyle, you know, the freestyle discs are still the still the old Super Pro and that kind of thing. That's 
that's my favorite. So yeah, and and I have my dad's discs. Uh, I've got a really sweet uh, original Eagle that was dad's, and uh, I'll I'll often throw that for a uh, like a, a a turnover long approach shot, and and I mean it's it's great. If the game only had that disc, we'd be happy. It's a it's a lovely flyer. Well, that's, cool. that's awesome. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time here, Dan, especially because I feel like if we try to jam it all in, I won't have an excuse to ask Nate to have you come back on soon because this is uh, this has just been amazing. Um, I, I personally am really enjoying these uh, these lessons and hearing these stories of, of the people that have paved the way to get the game to where it is today. And, um, you know, there certainly is uh, – it's not – the sport's not looking the way that it is without guys like – like you. So, um, you know, I certainly thank you for, for coming on and, and spending the time with us and, and answering some questions and telling some stories, man. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm really, I'm really flattered to, to join the list of, of people who you've had on. And, uh, it was, it was really fun hanging out with you because I think sometimes, you know, when you go to a big tournament these days and all these really famous guys are there and I'm just kind of wandering around, I feel like, you know, like, like Bill Walton showed up at a Lakers game and he says, uh, so LeBron, uh, where are you guys going after? You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay, Bill, thanks. For coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's oh, been man. really fun. Really fun. I'm, I'm delighted to get a chance to talk with you. Yeah, it was, I, I'm, I'm so happy that you were interested and, in, you know, as from the first time I got the chance to see you um, speak at any kind of event, I don't even remember which time it was, but anytime I hear you're going to be somewhere, you're going to speak at the Hall of Fame, I, that's that's must-see must see speech for me because I, I, just, I just love hearing your perspective and hearing your jokes because you're always funny every time you get up there and do something, uh, a public speaking thing. So always, always look forward to a chance when I get to interact with you and, and really happy to have had you on the show. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. All right, Nate, that was an amazing conversation we had with Stork. I mean, you keep bringing these guests on that are teaching these lessons. And I think people are really starting to dig this kind of, you know, back dig that you're doing into disc golf by bringing on some of, uh, you know, some of the, the forefathers and telling some stories, man. Yeah, it's I'm learning a lot, too. It's a, it's amazing. I mean, it just doesn't make sense when I think about his life and how he's just like, yeah, you know, and then I was there and played the very first college ultimate game ever and kicked ass and, you know, got the MVP and they carried me off the field, off the parking lot. And just to be there for WIFDIF and the PDGA and the beginning of the Ultimate Players Association and the Frisbee Players Association, or the Freestyle Players Association, it's just like, man, I mean, it, it makes me think of those those ESPN things where they go like, you know, Marshawn Lynch, a football life. And it just feels like stork, a Frisbee life, man. I mean, he's still going strong, obviously, but just the, the, the stories and the, the wealth of knowledge and experience and how much energy he has put into elevating disc sports. It's just, you know, it's just definitely the Mount Rushmore material. It's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, PDGA number three. Yeah, that's yeah, not messing around. 
No, no, he, he, he got in from the ground floor. So, um, you know, we're all out there enjoying this, listening to these podcasts, watching coverage and out there playing. And a lot of it is because of guys like, like Dan and, and some of the other folks that we have spoke to. And we've got more coming. We're going to keep doing this, I think. Um, you know, we'll mix in some of your friends from the tour, but I, I'm really enjoying these history lessons and hearing these stories. Yeah, and we've got kind of next week. I mean, I think we can we can reveal it now. Next week's guest is going to be five-time women's world champion Juliana Corver, kind of bridging that gap. She's definitely not – I wouldn't call her old school, uh, but she – you know, we're, we're going to hear some great stories, hear about the beginning of her career what she's doing now. She's just been kind of coming back to disc golf a little bit more lately. Still obviously a fantastic player. And yeah, really looking forward to uh, our next episode with Juliana Corver. Yeah, absolutely, guys. So there's the jump on it. You guys have questions for Juliana and Nate. You know how to reach us. You can go ahead and send your audio questions to runningitpodcast at gmail.com. You can go ahead and find us on Instagram at runningitwithnatesexton. I am at JaredOr222. He is at FrisbeeNate. And we are out of time. Nate, I'll tell you what. There was no laying up today, man. No, I, I can't. I, I would be embarrassed to lay up in front of the stork. Yeah, we, we, we had to run it, guys. Make sure you check out our sponsors. Special thanks again. Fisher Disc Golf, Cab Coffee Roasters. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you guys next week.